Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole. Today you are going to hear an episode where we had a nice chat with Rob Sheridan. Rob was the art director for Nine Inch Nails from about 2000 to 2014. Uh, he also was one of the masterminds of How to Destroy Angels. And he's done work with other artists like Pucifer. Uh, and I always have trouble saying the name of that damn band. You know, Maynard's band. And uh, the Black Queen. And right now, Rob is uh, working on High Level, a comic book he has written with the art done by Barnaby Bagenda and Romulo Ferrado Jr. And it comes out through Vertigo slash DC Comics. Um, you can find it at any local comic shop. The way we were put in touch with Rob was through Destiny City Comics with friend of the show Michael Fitzgerald. And uh, he recently did a signing there and... Michael said, hey, my friends have a Nine Nails podcast. Maybe you guys would like to talk. And uh, thanks again, Mike. And uh, another way you can pick up this book if you're not into the physical media area is uh, through Comixology. And if you have any trouble using Comixology, shoot Eric or I your message and we'll, let, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll help you out. But uh, it was nice talking to Rob. And we cover the comic book, High Level. We talk, of course, about some Nine Nails stuff. And we do a little geopolitical chatting because, uh, well, it's difficult not to. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So thanks again, Rob. And go out and buy High Level. Thank you. Rob Sheridan is here. And uh, very excited to be saying that. And very excited to have you here, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's our pleasure. It's kind of a milestone because, uh, well, it's the pod like a whole podcast where we've talked about every Nine Inch Nails song ever released ad nauseum. Yeah. And we're done with it now. <laughs> and uh, we got a couple things to talk about with Rob tonight, but I was thinking about it. Um, you know, Mark, you had that terrible website in high school. In 1999, was it? Yeah. And it looks like Rob did too. Well, I, saw. I, had a, I had a few terrible websites in high school. Yeah, and, and Rob's kind of the version, you know, we're all about 39, 38, and if we actually went and joined one of the, the bands we loved, we would have had Rob's life. But instead, we uh, took 20 more years, had kids, and then just did a podcast about the band. Sure. So, yeah. You know, he's the Earth 2, uh, Eric, Mark, and Steve. Sure. Great. Also, don't forget, having some talent would help go down that Earth 2 path. Yeah. 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 Thank God. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks for making time, Rob. I don't know how much talent was was visible in me uh, from the websites I made in the '90s, but someone saw something in them. The drive was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, clearly you had a you had a Nine Inch Nails fan site. What was the name of that one? It was called Above the Trees. Nice. Yeah. If you Google, you can still find remnants of it. Right, right, and yeah, um, yeah someone. Um, I think it was. I can't remember who it was. I think it was the guy from the Nin history website. He has a printout framed in his office of the, of my old site. Nice. Uh, so there, there are remnants of it still That's available. Exactly what you were going for when you probably started it. That's uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, I should old old late nineties websites. They, <laughs> they always make me feel warm inside. I'm just thinking about them. Oh yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it's, it's kind of changed a little bit now or like for a while it was like just hideously embarrassing how bad those sites looked. And now, now that everyone's doing this nineties nostalgia thing, I kind of dig the look of, of crappy old websites. It, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah, Captain Marvel. I mean, that whole um, marketing uh, platform—they're 
absolutely using that whole GeoCities Angel Fire look. Yeah, and they, and they had a Dancing Baby reference in there, too. On that <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up. I really uh, wanted to bring up... Uh, you didn't want to your money <laughs> I have never made one single cent off the Dancing Baby. So. Right, right, because... We, yeah, I didn't that, make did, it. Did that come from Ally McBeal, or was that something else, and Ally McBeal made it big? It was something else, and it was... Um, wait, hold on, the computer's trying to turn off here. Um, it was my website that I had made where I had found this weird file and I didn't know where it came from. And I just thought it was eerie and, and funny. And, um, I had it on a website and that the producer of Ali McBeal saw it on my website and decided he wanted to incorporate it into the show. I'd never even seen the show. And then all of a sudden I'm getting all these phone calls and emails from people wanting to talk to me because, this thing had aired on this <laughs> television show and it was suddenly blowing up. And then, um, and then everyone was going to my crappy website to download this like little MPEG of this creepy baby. So it, it just kind of happened in the weirdest way. And I guess um, my role in it was maiming it before memes were a thing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I mean, like bad, bad CGI, bad Photoshop is kind of a whole, its own subgenre of humor, but you were, you were clearly, uh, you know, zeroing in on that very early. How old were you at that time? Like 15? Um, I think I was 16, maybe. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Like that. It was the, uh, an early, uh, what is it? Social influencer? What it was called? It's a tastemaker. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well you know, I, I used to, hide that chapter of my life in deep shame but um <laughs> but then you know i was talking with um with a friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago who was a um, game designer who worked with us on year zero and it came up randomly in conversation he was like it like blew his mind that i was the one who made that thing popular because from from his perspective it was the first internet meme that transcended the internet and went out into mainstream culture outside of the internet. Yeah. yeah. And from everything I've looked up since then, I think it actually was the very first one to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to go outside of the web, you know, cause that wasn't now it's, you know, every single thing comes from the internet, but back then it wasn't normal for something like that to, to extend beyond the weird little culture of people who were using the internet in the nineties. So I guess I can take a certain sense of pride in that. You should have a whole wing in the Internet Museum whenever they open that. <laughs> it made the jump. And uh, I don't know if you guys ever finished Metal Gear Solid 2, but uh, definitely. Uh, yeah. Hideo Kojima talked all about that. And now it's the world we live in. Memes <laughs> yep. everywhere. Yep. Um, so we're going to jump a little bit because we really, really we want to put front and center is your new um, work that you're working on now, High Level, the comic book for DC Vertigo. Yes. Yeah, and um, but we all, of course would, would like to talk about some of the Nine Inch Nails experience that you had as well. But I really want to talk about the comic book right now. Um, I think uh, it's it, we have a good blend of people here, right? Because uh, you know uh, we're all Nine Inch Nails nerds, but we're also big comic nerds. And uh, yeah, no, uh, nice. growing up, growing up, definitely, uh, especially in, the, in in high school in early twenties. Discovering Vertigo comics was such a, a milestone. You know, oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, Discovering Vertigo like totally defined my teenage years. You yeah. know, um, there's a there's this picture of me in my high school bedroom 
<laughs> that's that's out there um and all the crap i have on my walls in my bedroom and there's a poster of nine inch nails and there's a poster of death from the sandman mm -hmm. and it's like looking back on it now it's like this is like a prediction of where my life is headed <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so it was it was obviously it was completely surreal to be drafted by um trent reznor and then it was you know surreal once again to be drafted by vertigo comics and so you're working on that with um uh who's your main uh artist on that i guess you have a uh, two that you're collaborating with right now right yeah i mean barnaby uh barnaby Begenda is our penciler he's um he's from indonesia and he's the co-creator as well because you know in comics the the artist and the writer um of a creator on title share the creative um, credit for it but we also have um, this guy Romulo who is the uh, colorist and the way that those two work together it's like Romulo's just as important um, as the penciler because he we don't have an inker he paints directly over Barnaby's pencils and they work together with such an incredible synergy that it's like it's almost crazy to think that there's two people doing it at all because yeah. of the painterly look that they produce that painterly look i really i love it it reminds me a lot of a dan brereton mm -hmm. um, just the like the love like there's a there's a depth to it to where some of the, the 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 perception of depth that they get is great um oh yeah and and if you look at um there's a feature actually that just went out today on Comics Beat where we break down the entire process of creating a page from it. So it's got all the pencils and the first stages of the coloring and the final coloring. And um, you, you, it's really amazing to see how differently the pencils look from the final version. Um, there's so much texture and depth <clears throat> that Ram is adding to Barnaby's pencils. And um, I was really drawn to these guys' work for this because I specifically wanted something that felt uh, kind of more like European um, style of artwork. Like, you know, Mobius was a big uh, influence in, in when I was thinking about art for this and early heavy metal and 70s sci-fi and stuff like that. And these guys have a, have a style that really feels different than a typical mainstream American comic. Yeah, we, I could definitely see that. How did you, um, how did the three of you, you said they worked together, but how did you guys get linked up? Um, well, originally I, it, I pitched, um, the concept of high level to Vertigo and they greenlit it and we, and then once they greenlit it, uh, my editor started talking to me about who we wanted to, to bring it to life in the art. And, he started sending me a bunch of suggestions. I sent him a bunch of references and influences. And he had previously worked with Barnaby and Rob on this um, comic book called Omega Men. Oh, and yeah. he, he showed me the samples from that. And I was just immediately like, yes, that. I, I really wanted something really detailed and, and really rich in the backgrounds and, and the character designs. And Barnaby's an incredible designer of sci-fi worlds. And, you know, when I describe something as simple as a bar scene, you know, in the comic and mention some details in it, he, f he fleshes out every little wire and cable and seam in the walls and, and really brings it a lived in tactile world, which is 
exactly what I wanted to go for. My daughter, my daughter ran up to me and, and I had the, the comic on the counter and she said, Oh, look at this guy in a tutu inside this bar, daddy. <laughs> and she's like, what's that suit that guy's wearing there? Gimp suit. Actually, yeah, that's a perfect art style for this kind of story because I guess, I don't know if you would call it a trope, but any futuristic Blade Runner-esque dystopia where there's, you know, they wander into a bar and then you're automatically, you want to look in the background and see all the wackiness that's buried in the bar going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and, really and that, that bar scene was directly ripped from the, um, the cantina scene in Star Wars um, mm. because I really liked the mechanic of, of <clears throat> storytelling that the cantina scene served, which was basically like at this point in Star Wars, you know, and this is why it's hard to release comic books one issue at a time once a month because you're essentially releasing 15 minutes of the movie at a time, you know, yeah. and the goal of the first issue is to as much as possible set the tone of the world and the story. And I always loved that scene in star Wars because at that point in the film, all you'd seen mostly was just a bunch of bland desert, a whiny kid, some old man and a couple clunky robots. You know, you didn't have any concept of how big the universe was. And then all of a sudden they go to this bar scene and it's like the entire universe expands so quickly in this one scene. And you realize, Oh man, there's a whole vast universe out here. Yeah. that they're going to be showing us. So it's a, it was kind of a, a narrative trick to be able to show how diverse our world was early on, um, even as the story kind of has its kind of humble beginnings. You can see the potential of where the world is going to go to later on. How many issues do you have on the stands right now? Uh, there's only one. The next yeah. one, issue two, comes out next week on March 20th. Oh, good. I get all my comics a month behind. Um, I think, Rob, you and I know the proprietor of Destiny City Comics in well, uh, Tacoma, that's, Washington. That's how uh, I got sucked into this podcast. I that's know. That's right. He's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. He's, what, what do they call that? He's the bait? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike, Mike Fitzgerald and Destiny City Comics. I'm just going to throw a quick plug into them if you're in the area. I used to live up there, um, and that, that comic shop is great. I still get my, my monthly comics sent from there to support him because it's a good, it's a great, great store. It's anyway, a great shop. Yeah. I yeah. stopped in there. Um, cause I'm, I'm kind of new to Tacoma and right. uh, I stopped in there recently to drop them off some posters for high level. And that's when he was like, you know, my friend runs a nine Tales podcast and he'd really love to have you. And then Steph got his info and then <laughs> here we are. <laughs> I, yeah, it was just, it was just happenstance. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so anyways, it, it, uh, it is a great shop though. And it's attached to like a record shop and a vintage store. It's just right. Like, is that the community the around there? Yeah. Yeah. The bookshop, the community around here in Tacoma is really cool. It, it, it feels like, um, it feels like the way Seattle felt growing up in the nineties where, I mean, right in my neighborhood, I've got four record shops and thrift stores and comic book stores and yeah, it's got a great bars. personality. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Eric. cool. But Eric wanted to move back to Sacramento. Good job, buddy. <laughs> oh, I need that Sacramento. vitamin D, baby. Sacramento. Yeah. Um, but so I think you were successful in that first issue for setting things up. You have a um, post-apocalyptic, maybe Earth. I don't know. We don't know yet, right? Um, you've got a... Uh, it is, yes, it is Earth. It okay. Is for, it's former America. I assume so, yeah. And then... That, that'll be... That, that's made a little bit more clear in the, um, in the visuals it, of issue two. 
You have uh, your hero, your heroes like a lovely scavenger 13. You've got mm-hmm. a, a mysterious bad guy. And um, you've got this kind of like this concept of high level, which is uh, almost like, you know, the haves and the have nots. Um, so you've got and you and you've kind of like planted these seeds for where the story is going to go um, without spoiling anything. Um what is kind of what do you what do you what are you trying to say through high level kind of about where we are now where we're going um everything about high level is um is very much talking about where we are right now but um i also wanted to make it a a fun science fiction fantasy you know something i think the best science fiction is something that you can enjoy on one level and then you can also realize that it's saying something to you on a different level and um you mentioned the haves and the have nots and i was thinking a lot about the intersection of uh the global climate change apocalypse that we're facing right now and the increasingly horrific um income inequality that Mm -hmm. we have uh, particularly in the united states i mean just look at look at today did you see that story about the uh uh, the 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 college admissions yeah uh, yeah ridiculous it's infuriating you know and when you ha- when you continue to have people who who vote for policies that work directly against their economic interests and you just keep giving more and more money and power to the tiniest tiniest percentage uh, of people it's it's going to go in one of two directions it's going to lead us all to serfdom or it's going to lead us to revolution. And high level is kind of about what if we stayed on this path and how would that intersect with the climate apocalypse and how differently the 1% uh, is going to survive uh, a climate apocalypse than the 99% is. And then from there, it's kind of a story about how to, how to tear that system down. And it's ultimately... I think it's been described as a dystopia just from the, you know, from the first issue. And I, I think that's fair in some respects, but it's not going to be a bleak dystopia. It's going to be a, a dramatic, difficult, wild journey, but the ultimate goal is a story about revolution. Well, it's definitely a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's bright. It's a lot of fun, but um, so I see what you mean about not being super bleak, which uh, you know, uh, I can't implore our listeners enough to, to check it out. It's um, it, and there's some you know there's some references in there that Nine Inch Nails fans will enjoy. As well. <laughs> I, I gotta say yep. though, I do appreciate. Yeah, there are bits of levity in it, and it is what I do like about it being you know you do bring that European aspect to the art, which I think a lot of European books do manage to have cartooning in the comics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, I I myself I wouldn't say I have dystopia fatigue this is a, a phrase i just learned of but <laughs> i do as i get older when things are what i find almost to be unnecessarily dark i do yeah. appreciate it when there's some some fun still to be had so yeah I, I don't, balance. you know on, on one hand it's like we're at a we're at a place right now where i think we need to we need to look at, at the consequences of of where we are as a society but we're also so fatigued just by the fucking news every day mm-hmm that I didn't want to do, you know, like I tried watching um, Handmaid's Tale, mm, the, the yeah. series, and having read the book years ago, 
I found that right now I couldn't really get through it. It was great. It's well done. But it just bummed me out because it's like, this is just reality right now, basically, you know? And so we wanted to, we wanted to tell a story about the darker aspects of society moving forward, but do it with some levity and do it with a lot of color. We wanted to, we wanted a dystopia that starts in a place and it's going to change a lot over the series because they're going to go to the colder, more dystopian, more sci, more hard sci-fi world. But at the beginning, I wanted to create this community of people who were scavenging bits of old technology and old media um, from the old world and piecing it together in this kind of DIY expressive community um, that's far away from all the systems of control and power in the world. So yeah, yeah, I want to find the balance of some darkness and some heavy topics with making it a, a fun read, ultimately. Uh, speaking of, uh, as the series goes on, I don't think I caught, is it a limited series or is there a, a planned number of issues or ongoing? It's a, it's a limited series. We, I originally planned it for 18 issues and um, now we've kind of revised the storyline to be a 12 issue series, but we're only guaranteed for six issues and comics are very uh, tumultuous right oh, now yeah. as an industry. Well, I can so, guarantee you with, with, with appearing on pod like a whole. <laughs> the numbers are just gonna skyrocket. <laughs> uh, it's it's real tricky, you know, because we we conceived the entire story. It, it's all designed. Like there's a place that it's going to. I know how it ends, and it goes to some really weird places. But you know, it doesn't actually get into the real hard themes of it until like issue seven and eight. So it's gonna suck if it ends at issue six because it's, right. it, it's gonna end on a hell of a cliffhanger. And, you know, most people who I think would be into this are the types of people who aren't hardcore comics fans. And they're, they're the type of people who pick up the graphic novel trade paperback, you know, in the bookstore. So hopefully we keep enough interest and, and find an audience in the um, monthly issues to get us to the point where we can put it all together as a 12 issue package. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be the, the ultimate vision of this. So just keep buying the issues, I guess. No, I want to. I want to see. Yeah. I want to see where. I want to see where it goes. Yeah. So well, I mean, I, one thing. I, it's it's literally like one of those things where like I know I know some friends in the industry who had six issue runs, and they didn't get renewed, and it was like okay, well we have to figure out a way to like give this story like an ending so that this six issue series makes sense, and I planned this one so strategically that. There's an absolutely no way to finish the story at issue six. So hold them if, hostage. If, yeah, if I mean, if they tell me to wrap it up, I'm be like, you do nothing makes sense. Yeah, There's... those are those are some of the weirdest comic runs that end abruptly. And like, <laughs> I remember one that I really liked was the Exterminators, and um, that was a uh, Simon Spurrier, I think, and Tony oh, yeah. Moore, and mm-hmm. another artist whose name escapes me. But you could tell in the third act they were told to wrap it up. And it, yeah. just, it just, it got, they tried to cram maybe 10 issues of storylines into one issue and it was just a, a bonkers ending and not, not in a good way. Yeah, so. I, I will. I mean, we're, we're too far into this now. I'm working on issue five right now that, that there's absolutely no way to wrap it up. And what we're doing is teasing little bits of, of what's a much deeper storyline. The first issue or the first page of the first issue hints at something that doesn't seem to make any kind of sense at all but it's actually something that's going to be explained 
much later in the series. So, you know what? If you, if you if we have to end at issue six, it's going to have to end in a way that makes people ask them to renew it because there's no other way to move forward. And that's kind of there's like a what is that like a little a medieval kind of thing going on in that first page I think so I yeah wherever say, the high level is yeah. yeah I can't say anything about that page. There you go. <laughs> um, Except that one thing that was really important to me was knowing the ending. I didn't want to get into a you know, situation like lost where they, they're just start making it up as they go along to keep it going, you know? Yeah. So I wanted to know how it all ends and I wanted to know what the big secrets are behind it so that we could tease them in a way that ends up being satisfying and not just nonsense, you know? Yeah. I think some of the, some of the best stories, long form stories or short form is when you know the ending, but you know how you get there isn't exactly planned out. I always appreciate that. Like I think breaking bad was a great example of that or yeah. recent state yeah. in the landings. But well, they, it, you know, no one. I don't think they plan to have a, a train heist in the middle of it. Then, you know. <laughs> well, it's important. I mean, whether I think Breaking Bad knew the character arc, you know, of how how Walter was going to turn out, but um, I think one of the most important things they did is said, "We're stopping here. We mm-hmm. we need to set an ending to this." Even though it was one of the most popular shows on TV at the time, you know, they were wise enough to set an ending and. Um, that's what we've done with high level is set an ending. And I, I'm really excited to, um, I'm really excited for people to see how weird and different the story gets uh, at about the halfway mark. I think one thing that's playing in your favor is that uh, Vertigo seems to be going through like a renaissance over the last year or two. Um, they kind of, they, 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 they used to be, you know, the cream of the crop. And then it seemed like a lot of like popular books ended at once. And over the last few years, there's been a lot of like uh, lack of a better term buzz around some of the issues. So you got a good home, you know that much. Yeah, but it you know um, there's a lot of other stuff going on um, on a higher level, you might say, in mm. comics. And um, <laughs> DC was recently bought out by corporate overlords from Verizon or you know AT and T is what it was or something bought uh, merged with Warner Brothers and. Right. And I, I see a lot of parallels in the comic industry uh, to where the music industry was in the early 2000s when all the major labels were getting bought out by huge conglomerates. And at the same time, the internet was happening, MP3s were happening, and the industry didn't want to deal with it. And you had these big companies that only wanted to think about immediate profits. So, and, and they were still trying to convince people to go into stores and buy $18 CDs, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the, it took the industry entirely down and it took uh, quite a few years for the industry to rebuild and modernize and adapt, which it has now. But, uh, I, I fear that comics is in a similar place right now and it, it might have to go through some difficult times before it rebuilds itself, um, as a modern comics industry whatever that looks like. And yeah, the, the absurdities of the direct market, we don't have time to get into, but they're not helping. So. Yeah. I could talk for a long time about that. And I probably no. shouldn't. At this no, point <laughs> we don't got enough time tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, um, I, I, you got a good voice for comics. I can't wait to see, you know, where high level goes or what else you, uh, what else you work on, um, in that we're going to kind of shift a little bit into, uh, the nine inch nails, um, 
conversation, if that's okay with you. Yeah. King of the Segway. King of the seamless Segway. Yeah. Hey, we're a scrappy operate. We're a scrappy little operation. Um, Hey, I'm a uh, big fan of Scrappy Operations. Yeah, good. Oh yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, we're all we all follow you on on Twitter, and so I mean, I appreciate your political your political views. We're all we're all uh, in line in line with you there. Yeah, it's a crazy time. I mean, it's, with you having such a higher profile online, um, and do you ever get inundated with just a bunch of trolls? Um, I mean, how do you handle that? You know, I I think um, going through the trenches. Uh, running the Nine Snails entire online presence for so many years. Yeah. I just got used to it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I came up in the, in the um, wild west days of the internet and um, there's not really much you can throw at me. That's, <laughs> that's going to bother me at this point. Definitely. Um, and um, you know, on Twitter, w- what was once a, a place where I was, you know, dealing with trolls and whatever it's kind of like you know by just ignoring them and blocking them and muting them um i have mostly gotten rid of of the trolls that come up through the comic book industry i I, that opened up a whole new world of trolls for me (laughs) oh my oh my you know what's going on in that world yes there's the gates and the the whatever oh god just the worst people on earth with their you know, vocal minority, but, um, but I just, but I just block in the right people. And, um, I also have my Twitter set that like, I don't even see notifications unless it's from someone who follows me or I follow them. So there's like, there's a bunch of people just yelling into the void. They don't even see, like have fun, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but it's, it is really, you know, I, I'm used to this and I'm also a, you know, a straight white well-to-do man mm, yeah and when that makes it a lot easier honestly to bear the burden of people who just want to tear you down but when i think about like being someone from a marginalized community or someone who doesn't have a big fan base or a lot of experience with this trying to enter into one of these spaces whether it's a fandom or film or comics or whatever that's been overtaken by these trolls it would be so discouraging, yeah. you know, it would be, I, yeah. I don't know how some of these people do it. And I think it, it turns a lot of people away from trying to enter these spaces. And, and that's a real shame. Yeah. And the most you can do is try to, you know, not make it about yourself where you're trying to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, that's all you really can do. We just yeah. gotta, you gotta hope that the, the bastards don't get enough people down and they can break through. But, yeah. And I, and I think the best thing that is that, anybody can do whether you're a fan or you're a creator or whatever it is is you know always stand behind the people who are struggling and getting shit on the most uh, by this army um and you know they don't they don't have a lot of ammo on me because i'm a straight white dude you know but um the shit that they launch at women who try to work in comics at minorities who work in comics it's just disgusting and it's so disheartening so any any opportunity that anyone has to to show their support for people who are trying to work in in this very antagonistic climate uh, is important so uh, i the internet's kind of different than it was back when um say like year zero came out Mm -hmm. but um 
you know, Nine Inch Nails has a strange cross section of 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 fans politically. Um, clearly, uh, the story that Trent and and you know, I know you collaborated big time on that album. As far as like we're trying to tell, is definitely not in line with some of the more conservative Nine Inch Nails fans. Did you guys get very much, uh, you know, very much like fan hate back then? Because it, it comes up. It's a very weird issue that's coming up now sometimes you know following the fan sites you know and you know we interact with our fan you know our listeners and we we go to the various nine inch nails boards and it's still kind of like an issue like i like nine inch nails but those politics there's definitely a cross-section do you guys get much of that you know i i really didn't see that much of it back then in the year zero days um and i think part of that is as i mentioned earlier science fiction being such a great way to subversively talk about politics a little bit you know there were people who there were fans who went along with the entire year zero campaign and enjoyed the album and didn't even realize that it was a complete condemnation of the politics that they support you know? mm-hmm. and still and still don't understand and that goes back even earlier than year zero i mean um the hand that feeds was a song about George Bush and the politics of that era. And, mm-hmm. and that, that was really the, the seed of Trent's anger about what was going on in politics that led to year zero. So uh, it's kind of absurd to me that you could be someone on the right who thinks that politics aren't a part of Nine Inch Nails, you know, because they always have been. Right. Um, but I think another thing that's changed since the year zero time is a lot of what we see now as the online um, alt-right community has been created through the internet and through YouTube. And a lot of people have been radicalized mm-hmm. into yeah. being a lot more right-wing because of what they see online. And that wasn't as prominent of a community uh, back in those days. And a lot of those people who probably hadn't been radicalized yet back then are looking back on on you know things that they enjoy like an Inch Nails album and wanting some kind of revisionist history idea of what it was. But, you know, we didn't have as strong of a, of an alt-right internet back then. Yeah, that's true. It's really true. Like it, it baffles me when you hear like uh, people uh, like Richard Spencer saying he's a huge Depeche Mode fan or, you know, it's just, if he met Depeche Mode, they would be absolutely just disgusted with him. Depeche Mode would hate him. Absolutely. And I I just, yeah, I don't know. It it must. So these guys are already finding they're, they're glomming onto these groups that are angry about whatever. And then once they realize they, that the artists they enjoy probably can't stand them, get angrier. It's like a weird. you, You see how much cognitive dissonance you have to have just to even, support the politics that they support. Oh, yeah, you, know, you go back to what you're saying about voting against your interests. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then when you go beyond that, when they start to realize that basically, I mean, 99% of every creative person who makes all of the things that they like, and that even includes software, movies, comic books, whatever it might be, 99% of those people um, skew liberal. That's just the reality because creativity is liberal. It requires empathy. It requires emotion and looking into the world and and seeing how it reflects back on yourself. That's the core of all creative um, output. So 
once they start to look at that and realize, oh, none of these people agree with my politics, then they're pretty much left with like what, um, I don't know, the guy from Happy Days and Kid Rock or something. You know, there's not, <laughs> yeah. there's Toby not Keith. much. Yeah, Toby Keith. There's not much there unless you extend your cognitive dissonance to say, well, no, Trent actually doesn't, you know, Trent wouldn't hate Trump. You know, he's just, it, it actually means this thing or whatever it might be. No, you can um, always go back to cat scratch fever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a single old man myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a and, change. I mean, we saw it with with um, Comicsgate when, um, you know, they were trying to make their hate, it's a hate movement at its core, and they were trying to make their hate movement about, we just want quality of stories about all this SJW bullshit, and the people that they would mention, um, like Neil Gaiman, all of a sudden, all those people, like Neil Gaiman, started coming out and saying, fuck you guys, we hate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And when all these comic pros that they supposedly set as their benchmarks of what good comic writing is told them to go fuck themselves their little window of who they could even support anymore shrunk so small that it's like how can you guys even call yourselves comic book fans anymore you know at some point you're gonna have to realize that what you're supporting is not about loving comic books it's not about loving anything it's just about hate and um I see that in so so many fandoms these days, and it's a reflection of what's happening in the world, where there's a lot of angry, radicalized white boys, you know, who have a big, fat orange leader to look up to right now. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's it's a hard time to to navigate geek spaces on the internet, and and that that goes into music as well. I mean, and even we don't need to fall too far down this rabbit hole. But if you go beyond just the pop culture aspect of it, I mean, you see it in sports. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, there was an incident in the Utah Jazz game in the, with, the, uh, with the Thunder in Russell West, Westbrook. And, yeah. um, you know, you see it definitely just there can't even be any kind of civil discussion on Capitol Hill, it seems, without whatever Tucker Carlson tries to spin it as. So it's, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, and it's, I mean, I mean, what it's really all about at its core is angry angry toxic masculinity white men who feel like they're losing their grip of power and their place in this society and they don't know how to adapt so instead they lash out and it's easier to watch a hundred youtube videos of some asshole in his mom's basement talking about why it's the fault of the immigrants or it's the fault of minorities or it's the fault of women that's why you're not getting laid. That's why you don't yeah. have a good job. That's why everyone hates you. You know, it's so much easier to do that than to take a look in the mirror and say, "How can I be a better person?" Yeah, yeah, but you know, it, uh, what a few years ago that was that was counterculture. But I feel like people people in power have left that door open. You know, to make it a uh, like you like you were saying more. You know, the radicalized are now uh, more out in the open. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and it's when it's enabled and when it's encouraged by the people at the, in the highest centers of power, uh, you suddenly have people wearing, you know, swastikas out in public and, and screaming racial slurs and, and starting fights and yelling Trump, Trump and all this kind of shit that they would have never felt okay about doing before. You know, it's not that that hate wasn't there. It's just that once it starts to be accepted, 
it becomes an easy way out for for so many kind of small people who are looking for to grab a little bit of power by trying to take it away from others. You know, a lot of people just said like, you know, oh shit, I can get away with this. And <laughs> off the races, I yeah. could be president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess we can all be president. Now, huh? right. <laughs> I, used to, I used to think there were a lot of things in my past that would prevent me from being president, but Hey, yeah. Not <laughs> I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'll, I'll give Trump credit for that one thing, at least. Right, right. And you know, I'm constantly playing, like, okay, well, if he got away with it. Who can we try that, like, I could tolerate, right. you know? Like, right, you know, yeah. I think lately I've been on a Henry Rollins kid. Right. So, <laughs> you made a meme about dancing babies. You could be president. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I wrote a blog once about uh, shitting in a kitchen sink, so it doesn't matter anymore. I thought that would have disqualified me, but no, not Mike anymore. Patton, now that Mike qualifies Patton, you. Mike Patton could be a great president. Oh. Yeah, there you, you go. Know? Man, shit off go. stage. <laughs> so um, with all the kind of political ideas that were going into developing Year Zero, and I bring it up again just because I guess I don't know this, but based on the online stuff, it looks like you, you really did play a big part in that album. And, um, that album's very, very special to me through this podcast. I, uh, I really kind of fell for it. If you, um, if you don't, you'll never have to listen to this podcast, but if you ever did in every episode, Eric tries to find a goddamn storyline and everything. And <laughs> I do. Year zero was total red meat to the guy. Oh God. So yeah. Thank you for yeah. Me. Yeah. It was catnip. Well, yeah. Well, year zero is probably the, like the most story driven, you know, of all. The right. Oh, absolutely. Look at. Yeah. Definitely. But so that was the... before I forget, that reminds me when we were talking about it and storylines, mm-hmm. wasn't there like a section where there was like a, a comic page found or something? That, right. Yeah. Was it, did Mark Bagley draw something for it? Who was that that we looked at? Yeah, no, that was, there was the, um, it was like, the, there was supposed to be like some good soldier comic, right? There was, there was one page of a comic that was supposed to be like from, uh, from the world of Year Zero, that was written from the perspective of a good soldier esque character, and that comic was uh, produced uh, as with all of the um, supplemental material that was online by Forty Two Entertainment. And, and 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 actually, it's kind of funny because um, this isn't my first experience with DC, because Trent and I had been in talks with them about uh, doing a Year Zero comic. We were going to do it. We we met with Jim Lee a few times, and um, we're talking with him about maybe doing an anthology type comic, where we had different artists and writers write short stories uh, from the world of Year Zero. And um, you know, for whatever reason, just like the TV show, it didn't happen. But uh, hey, maybe there's you know now now Jim Lee's my publisher. So ah, there you go. Bring it back up again. Bring it back. It's a tra- yeah. tragedy. We couldn't get more of that. Bring that was a great story. That, you know, Nick Cave's had a comic anthology that mm-hmm. I have. Well, uh, Ben, you know, Bell and Sebastian had a comic anthology. <laughs> you can't get that I mean, made now. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, Trent was really into it because it's, um, it's a way to tell stories and create a world in a very controlled atmosphere, which is something that Trent, uh, really likes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his shows or listened to any of his albums, but, <laughs> but uh, you know he likes a controlled atmosphere, and so do I. And this is something where you don't have to like. You, comics are awesome because you can make a movie without having to go to a studio and ask for fifty million dollars and have a bunch of executives up your ass telling you what to do yeah. and hope that it comes out okay. Um, you can sit. You can sit in your room and craft a story with with artists and editors that um, 
there's no budget constraints. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Trent the other day about high level and I, I, at some point I want to say like, you know, dude, if, if you want to like, if you want to get into comics, I, I know some guys now. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can open some doors for him. He's just starting out and everything. <laughs> yeah. It comes, it comes full circle. Now, well, you know, well, I, think part, well, I think part of it though is like, it's a, it's a totally different world and it, it, it is a little bit like where to even get started when you're, when you're changing and it was a really hard change for me to go from, from what I was doing in the comic writing. And it was a little intimidating at first, but once you get the groove of it, it's fantastic. So it, it, it helps to, um, it helps to have a little like, you know, foot in the door of starting out and, and getting some, some rhythm with it. I wrote a whole bunch of test scripts before starting high level. I wrote like some green arrow comics and stuff like that. Oh, nice. What, uh, so as far as like mainstream properties go, like what would be some that you would be interested in, in writing? I honestly don't know. I, th- I think after, um, after a high level, I think my next focus would be another, um, original creative title. Sure. That's gotta uh, be I, more rewarding. It It's more rewarding, but also like, I want to like, you know, I want to really get into it a lot more and really get get into the process and, and the creativity before I try to tackle some beloved, you know, character or something like that. Oh, right. that yeah, yeah. If you go and try to write Daredevil too, there's going to be a whole bunch of shackles. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. There's a, there's a lot. I'm, I might, I mean, my Twitter account alone might disqualify me from ever working for Marvel. I don't know. Oh yeah. Have you read James Gunn? <laughs> well, he's, yeah, yeah. He found a new home at DC though, which is I know. interesting, right? <laughs> well, and good for them for picking him up because oh, yeah. that was a complete bullshit move. It's bullshit. complete bullshit. Uh, and it's just, I mean, those Guardians of the Galaxy movies are so fun. And I don't, you know, uh, I'll probably watch a third one if it gets made, but it just won't be the same. Those, no. those were definitely his movies. Well, apparently they're using his script now. That's the last thing I heard. I don't know if yeah. that's true. I, I think of uh, uh, Dave Batista. Mm-hmm. They'd ultimatum that you like you have to use this script or Drax walks or something. Right. So, yeah. Right. Well, I, I don't is, know if you've is, I don't is know his if brother gonna be in company. It? Have you guys heard of this company called uh, Disney? They're kind, of a <laughs> big, they're kind of a big deal, and I feel like when they hire a director, they probably look into all the stuff he's done in the past, right? Yeah. So it seems kind of bizarre that when all that stuff was sitting out there from forever ago, and and James Gunn. He was kind of an asshole back in the day. Like he was a sure. he was an ins- he was a shit starter. He was an instigator. He tried to make films uh, in a very provocative way, mm-hmm. you know. And he acknowledges that, and that that's what he was at the time. So to to obviously know the past of someone you're hiring, and then suddenly act like it's new information because a bunch of trolls pulled it up, uh, you know, is just it's just a weird weird move by disney to do he that. was a trauma guy wasn't he yeah he yeah. Was trauma yeah that guy. should so just like, be a red flag <laughs> yeah so what do you, you go you go to trauma yeah. the fat guy goes nuts away. Right? yeah uh, yeah when you got when you got and, lloyd kaufman jacking off in the corner of one of your movies <laughs> yeah and and you know at we're at a point right now where everyone's being called out on their bullshit but there, you also have to at a certain point understand the context of where things were 10 15 20 years ago where stuff that and again james has said this directly but stuff that would have flown uh, flown at trauma back then would never be acceptable now 
you know, yeah, yeah. and that's just where things were at the time. And the t- and someone like James Gunn, who made that stuff, wouldn't do it now. He wouldn't make that decision because I think we've all learned a lot um, about things that certain people think are funny at the expense of others. That's just not where culture is right now. But as long as you've shown the willingness to grow and change and learn, um, I don't think you should be punished for participating in you know in a culture of the past if you're different now and it's just disheartening to see them betray someone who really has grown and changed well um since this is pod like a whole the nice nails podcast where we've talked about every goddamn song mm-hmm. i do want to ask when we're looking when I was, I was looking at your your wikipedia entry doing the real in-depth uh, studying <laughs> last night. The research, yeah. the hard hitting. Yeah. And so I should probably look at my Wikipedia. I don't know. It wasn't anything too terrible in there. <laughs> but, but so art direction, I'm no artist, but that's like, it's a very broad term that can mean a lot of stuff. So for like the yeah. decade and change that you guys were working together, what exactly did your position entail with, with the, the whole outfit? You know, I didn't even know what an art director was until I had to come up with some kind of job title for myself <laughs> with Nine Inch Nails. Well done. Uh, you know, at a certain point, it was like, how do you want to be credited on this album? And I was like, well, I was kind of overseeing the visual identity uh, and presentation of everything. So um, art director was one term, creative director was another. And it, what it basically boils down to is anything that's presented uh, in a visual sense, out into the world um, under the umbrella of Nine Inch Nails, I was overseeing and I was checking it. I was usually creating it and making sure that it was all cohesive and that when we launched advertising or uh, merchandise or whatever around an album campaign, that it all kind of felt united around one visual style, whatever that particular style was at the time. So it was a very all-encompassing job that went from sometimes album art to videos to stage design to uh, simple little things like you know the advertisements in the local newspaper about the upcoming concerts. Uh, to completely just brush your your kind of look during your time with Nine Inch Nails in like a broad stroke, you know, glitch art comes to mind. Um, uh, just looking at some of your um, like album covers, and then that definitely got adopted into How to Destroy Angels as well. Um, did that was that always kind of a look that you were going for, or did that kind of come up as the as the as the projects dictated it? Um, you know, every project we looked at as um, what is this album about? What is it trying to say? And um, how do we want to communicate it visually? So. Sometimes, you know, I get I get associated with glitch art because it's kind of been my thing for a while. But at the same time, I also did Ghosts, which was mm-hmm. really organic photography. Yeah, you know? like absolutely. And then, absolutely. Just, Didn't you, weren't you up for a Grammy for that bad boy? Uh, yeah, I yeah. was. Fucking Radiohead. <laughs> I, I've been saying that since Kid A, when it all sounds the same. But, uh... Uh, it's all a scam. Um, <laughs> you know... Or um, or the slip, you know, which was very um, design based and and was influenced by um, by uh, a lot of Polish old, old design techniques. 
Um, so there's there's some influence of glitch art in Nine Inch Nails, but there actually is as much as people think. I think in terms of actual artwork uh, in Nine Inch Nails, uh, with Teeth and Year Zero were the only two glitch art focused albums that we did. And then I went full on glitch art without a story. Right. And that's probably what but, I'm thinking because that's yeah. one of the more recent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my style now because I, I really got into that analog glitch art style. But um, in terms of like, okay, where it comes from, I wasn't a glitch artist until I started learning about how Trent makes music. And that was a really key influence when the first album that I um, art directed from beginning to end was with teeth. And um, actually I'll tell you right now that I'm um, supervising and and kind of um, giving some input on the with teeth uh, remaster vinyl. Oh, fantastic. Very awesome to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just to, just to kind of like, help uh john crawford uh with some stuff that's like difficult to like fit into the vinyl format and that they're kind of you know they're doing a really good job of doing those remasters in the ways that are really uh accurate to the style you know of the original albums so i'm just advising on that a little bit but um when we got to with teeth i had learned so much about the way trent broke sound you know he he likes to use instruments in ways they're not supposed to. He likes to use tools in ways that make them sound wrong and turn that into art and music. And um, I got really inspired by that. And at the time, digital technology was at this like weird early precipice where a lot of it was broken in weird ways. And that's what inspired the artwork of With Teeth. And that's what got me into glitch art. Why is there this neon green pixel in the middle of my picture that I just uploaded? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and when you start to, you know, when you see how many happy accidents that, you know, when you sit in the room with Trent and, and Alan Mulder and see how many accidents that they say, hey, actually, that sounds kind of cool. Let's try that. You know, um, mistakes become a form of art. And I love that about glitch art where visual accidents and things breaking and being used in the wrong way um, create a certain feeling in the art and create an unpredictability in it that's really fun to work with. And I also learned a little bit about that from David Carson, who was a guy who liked to like, you know, a lot of the photographs in the fragile were like bad snapshots that he Mm -hmm. took with a shitty camera, you know, and he liked it sometimes when they didn't come out right. And they created a new texture that he wasn't expecting or when he wasn't using cork express right and he blew the image up and it pixelated and it's like actually that looks cool <laughs> you know david carson was the master of of making mistakes and turning them into art so that you know i wouldn't call david's art glitch art but it certainly has the same philosophy yeah i remember i remember when i first saw those album covers or the album cover me inside artwork when i was a teenager of the fragile and how I was like, wow, this is really not what I expected at all, but mm-hmm. incredibly uh, powerful. And uh, yeah, it's a yeah, well, awesome I'll, style. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget when, um, when David pitched this, like this early composition of, I, I think at that point when, because we had, um, 
we had a different artist who created the um, the early single art for the day the world went away, and um, and that was cool. But Trent wanted something a little bit more. The fragile to him was a very uh, unconventional album and an uncomfortable album. Hmm. He wanted the art to feel uncomfortable, and when Carson came to us with this early composition of this cut halfway cut off nine inch nails logo you have to remember at the time they're like mtv was still a thing and they were hyping the return of nine inch nails is going to save rock and roll yeah. those, were the, those were the headlines at the time yeah, yeah. commercials gonna, they had some commercials yeah yeah it's gonna save rock and roll that's what a rolling stone and mtv were saying and that wasn't you know, I was behind the scenes at that time, and I could see that that wasn't the album that Trent was making for The Fragile, and that's not what he wanted to make. So he really liked how broken David Carson's art felt. And when he came with that cutoff Nine Inch Nails logo, which is exactly the opposite of what you'd expect mm-hmm. from a from a big comeback album that's going to save rock and roll, it was uncomfortable and weird, and it didn't look right. And that's what he loved about it. And um, and then ultimately, when we went to the fragile, the fragile, um, you know, it didn't it it didn't save rock and roll at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, from a um, maybe a selling standpoint, but I think that it, for a weekend, it, it yeah, <laughs> I, I know that it dropped pretty significantly on the Billboard charts. That's what it's kind of known for in the industry. Well, I, I just I just mean that it wasn't the album that people were expecting. Yeah, the definitely. Who had been not listening even to to the Nine Inch Nails hits over the years were waiting for this like power rock album. Yeah, and instead it was a it was a dramatic rock opera, and it was. It was exactly the album it needed to be. It was. It was. It's my favorite Nine Inch Nails album. Same here. Same. Yeah. Um, I, we've all like when we got to the fragile episode, we split it up into three because we also talked about deviations. <laughs> yeah. And we just oh, yeah. went yeah. nuts on that record. Yeah. 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 No, but that's that's one thing that we've always appreciated is that you guys, the uh, Nine Inch Nails, you know, it's uh, uh, never without trying to be too overblown about it, not really into compromising. And I think the fans appreciate it more when you get, you know, it's not like eating your vegetables, like you, it's never watered down. Right. And, yeah. you know, and that's a, it's, it's, it's something you can, it's been consistent that you get well, it, what is a hundred percent, you know? Well, it's what, it's always been what he wants to make and what feels right to him at the time, you know? And so when, when you move on to with teeth, the reason that the cover with teeth is a prominent Nine Inch Nails logo is a direct contrast to the cover of The Fragile because with that album, he did want to say, fuck you, I'm back. Yep. You know, I think he said punch in the face <laughs> or you know, or something yep. at the time. And he wanted to make a more direct album um, that was very different from The Fragile. And when we were going back and forth with all these kind of textural, ethereal concepts, we had a million fucking concepts for the cover of that album. Mm-hmm. And most of them were really quiet and textural. And finally, Trent just said, let's just put the fucking logo right on the front of it, hmm. right in the center. And that was meant to be a statement about how this was a very different album. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a lean and mean record. Uh, I love that album. I remember during the uh, early stages of it when it was uh, tentatively, you know, in the fan spectrum called Bleed Through. That's what everyone thought it was going to be. 
Um, that's think, what I, that's yeah. what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, you've seen the artwork I designed for us. That's mm -hmm. right. Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and I remember signing up for the Nine Inch Nails uh, membership, where I got the T-shirt, the spiral. Um, I got the T-shirt. Yep. I got the big old poster that, with the extra yep. lyrics and all that. Yeah. Um, I went. We all three went to the warm up shows. Uh, one in Reno and one in Davis. Um, and that was like the first time that we really heard most of the material was live. Um, I actually got to go to a sound check at the Warfield. Or no. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was at the Warfield. It was in the Warfield. I yeah. wasn't there and I knew it was in the Warfield. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Trent went down the line. He got to meet, I got to meet him, shake his hand. And that was when Jory and Aaron and uh, Alessandro and all of them were in, in the band. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, that was an incredible time, especially having a five-year layover between that and the Fragile and not knowing what to expect because the Fragile was such a dense work and then come out with something just completely just straightforward and direct. And then mm -hmm. uh, the visual style uh, kind of also felt the same way. Um, so, you know what yeah. also is a bold, bold move? was the matching haircuts in the With Teeth video. Yeah, was that your decision? <laughs> I had nothing to do with their style. <laughs> I watched that video recently. And just, it all looks like extreme Jack White hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 2005 was a strange time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, the photos of me are not very, uh, no, terrible. Uh, I, I look like a like a... 80 pound hipster when I look at photos of myself from back then. So, yeah. I can't say, I can't speak to that. Rob, we know you got to go soon, but I, I just, I think we'd be remiss not to just mention your, your, your work on the video realm also. Um, in addition to that, that music video, you did a lot of the, um, I mean, kind of candid, but clearly set up like uh, still videos and, yeah. um, and then the, the big, like the big concert movies, which are, are, you know, just objectively great, you know, concert films. Um, so did you, do you have a different approach when you, uh, would, would do your videos? I mean, then, then when you would do your album artwork, um, you know, um, I think one of the most interesting things for me to look back on is, um, when we were thinking about how to film the fragility tour, um, Trent had, had previous bad experiences with hiring professional camera crews and professional directors uh, to, to film concerts. And he hated the process of it because a lot of it was these guys coming in and needing giant cranes and all these crew and then asking him like, Hey, can you turn the smoke down and turn the lights up? Cause we, our cameras can't get them and stuff like that. And it would piss him off. Cause it was like, that's ruining what the experience is and you're not capturing it. You're trying to capture this like big pop production, but that's, that's not what we're trying to represent here. And that's what led to closure originally was him trying to get it filmed uh, by a, by a serious camera crew and, and serious director. And he looked back at it and thought, this is too sanitized. This is too perfect. This isn't what it feels like to be at an Nine Nails show. And what he responded to was Jonathan Rock's uh, personal footage that he'd been filming, you know, as the tour photographer at the time, because it was messy and it was chaotic and it was shaky and it was shitty, you know. Mm -hmm. and that, Another something when that, I think of closure, this is my favorite moments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, big and big ups to your closure bonus features, by the way, that I that I just uh, followed your link to last weekend. Oh yeah, yeah oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. 
unfortunately that never got released but it's out there it's a great watch but yeah sorry go on (laughs) um you know so that came back around in um in the fragility days when you know we had this really cool tour in fragility and Trent was thinking about how we wanted to capture it and once again it went down the same path of him you know at that time digital video was brand new and the fact that you could have consumer dv cameras that took really great looking imagery and you could just dump them really quickly and easily on your computer and edit them. That was all a brand new thing. It, it essentially turned your laptop into a uh, avid studio editing suite, you know? So around that tour, he was looking at the like little clips that I was filming as the young new tour photographer. And was just like, let's just make a fucking tour documentary with this footage. Just film as much as you can. And then we'll edit it together. And so I filmed as much as I could. And I filmed a lot of it from within the crowd and on the stage. And and I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, with these new cameras. And I wasn't an experienced, you know, cinematographer or anything like that at the time. So it, it communicated the same type of rawness um, that Jonathan Rock's film footage did, but now in digital video. And then... He was like, well, you know, you know this stuff better than anyone. You filmed it all. Do you want to try editing it? I never edited anything before, but I'd been learning Final Cut Pro, um, which allowed anyone to uh, to be a professional video editor, you know, uh, with their laptop. So that's what led to and all that could have been. And we edited an entire tour's worth of footage <laughs> into one concert and made it cohesive. And, and I look back at that now and think like, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, but I was mostly powered by the knowledge of what the concert was and what it should feel like because I'd been there through the whole thing. So I think, you know, to a certain respect, you can have all the technology and, and technical expertise in the world, but if you don't know what it feels like, you know, if you're an outsider to something and you don't understand what you're trying to convey as an experience, none of that matters, you know? Right. Well, yeah, it looks like you, uh, you know, you, you got better as time went on and from the sounds of it, you had humble beginnings and you, you faked it till you made it. Now you've definitely made it. And uh, one thing I, it, it seems now that, you know, you're working with other artists and I, before we go tonight, uh, I'm a big Dillinger Escape Plan fan, and <laughs> yeah. um, I watched that Black Queen video you made, and yeah. uh, I just wanted to say it's really good. Uh, <laughs> oh, how'd, how'd that come about? I think there there might be a a, a member from the the Nine Nails uh, tribe in that band as well. So was that the connection I, I, there? Or? Everybody in Dill in uh, not Dillinger in uh, Black Queen has connections to Nine Inch Nails. Um, so you've got. Um, You've got Josh Eustace, who is from Telephone Tel Aviv, and he was in Nine Inch Nails. Um, you've got um, Stephen Alexander, who was um, Trent's tech, and his keyboard tech, and also Alessandro's tech for a while on the tours of Nine Inch Nails. Uh, he's in it. And then, of course, you've got Greg, the lead singer from Dillinger, who uh, is a friend of Nine Inch Nails and obviously opened and played with them uh, quite a few times. Yeah. Um, and now um, Josh is out on this recent tour, so instead they have Justin um, 
standing in for Josh and Justin uh, has been a tech for Trent uh, for a long time as well, and Alessandro. So it's a it's very much a Nine Inch Nails family yeah. kind of yeah. band. So those guys were all friends of mine, and um, we we hung a lot we hung out a lot in LA, and um, they were talking about like wanting to do this kind of weird 80s inspired video and they had all these like random dissonant ideas and they didn't have an album yet so they had no money and we just started talking about it and was like let's just film a bunch of stuff and make a bunch of weird things and put it together and see what happens and so we we basically did that video on, on a budget of zero mm-hmm. and just did it by hanging out and filming weird stuff and and I did a ton of post-production on it and, and editing and it turned out really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun it's watch. It. It's got your fingerprints on it for sure. They're, they're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anybody that listens to this podcast would probably like black queen if they listen to them. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love those guys. Uh, I'm going to go see them uh, later this month in, uh, in Seattle here. And I highly recommend checking them out because they're great dudes and they, they have nine inch nails DNA all over them. Um, and you know, working with them on the visuals that, um, that I did for that video and also for their tour is the way I like to work and the way I've done some of my best work, which is just doing it for no budget, no crew, no professional uh, equipment at all. Just making it work with what you have. Scrappy. Um, we were always, always a scrappy team at Nine Inch Nails. It was mostly just me and Trent figuring shit out and making shit. And uh, I love working like that. Nice. Just like this podcast. That's right. Yeah, that's scrappy. Exactly. scrappy operation. Yeah. Scrappy operations are awesome. Yeah. Three middle-aged dads, two microphones, and a laptop. That's right. Well, it, you know what? The, uh, going back to like, and all that could have been and stuff like that, I, I think one of the biggest things I've learned uh, over the years with Nine Inch Nails is that you know, you're, often, you're often made to feel like, well, I can't do this thing. I don't know anything about it. I have no experience here. There are experts who know this. And most of what you learn in the in the creative world is that no one really fucking knows what they're doing. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are just better at faking it than you. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's not to it's not to say that you don't have to have talent. You do have to have talent, but you don't need it in the way that you sometimes think you do. And sometimes your talent is exactly as much as you need and you just feel intimidated by an industry or a profession or a world that you're not a part of and you think i can't do this but there's value in just fucking doing it and realizing that no one out there is smarter than you you know a lot of the people who hold all the power in this world are are not people who are very smart who are very talented. <laughs> and they're lazy. And the sooner you stop being intimidated by them, the better you're going to do. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. That's, uh, that's some, that's a really good sentiment to leave it on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've really been generous with your time tonight. Appreciate it. Um, obviously we're going to recommend high level to anyone that will listen. Do we have, do you have any other, uh, works, um, that, uh, coming down people the coming down, like yeah, that, that people should be looking out for? Uh, no, right right now I'm pretty much focused on that. Um, I'll be at Emerald City Comic Con next uh, week. No, this week actually. Damn. Um, yeah, oh, that's a good con. Uh, when I used to live up there, Steve came up and visited for one uh, one uh, 
all day. We went on an all day drunk to that con and (laughs) I'm sure we talked to Rick Remender and, and uh, that's what I'll be doing on Thursday. Yeah. It's a great con. It's, it's a lot more, um, it feels a lot more fan oriented. Like there's a lot more cosplay and like fun stuff happening than some of the bigger cons. So I, I love Emerald city. Um, I'm doing that. I've got um, some new prints available in my print store. I've got glitch art throw pillows, which is my new thing that, that we just started getting into and they're really fun. So yeah, I yeah. saw a little bit Check of that. Those, that look, those look good. Yeah. And that's all available on robsheridan.com. Is that right? That is, that is correct. Rob dash Sheridan.com. That's right. Because some other Rob Sheridan has been hoarding robsheridan.com for like 20 years and doing nothing with it. It's just sitting there. It's like a GoDaddy like flash page. Mm. There's nothing yep. there. Yep. Oh my God. It, the irony of it, the irony of it is it goes to a GoDaddy splash page <laughs> that links to a bunch of things about me. <laughs> okay. But it's like, you know, because it auto populates with like links of like, who's Rob Sheridan? Okay, go to these links. And it links to a bunch of Niners Nail shit. I'm like, mm. dude, just give me the fucking domain if you're not going to do anything. Yeah. Uh, the, internet, anyway, the internet's a great I, place. I'm Rob Dash Sheridan. No. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, we do appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Rob. This is great. Thanks for having me. It's fun talking to you guys. Yeah, Thank you. So that was the conversation with Rob Sheridan. It was highly enjoyable. Uh, he seemed like a really good sport, uh, up for any stupid questions what we had for him. Um, yeah, he was, it was quite the talk. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What do you, what about you guys? Oh yeah, no, you know, Mark almost became Chris Farley right before me in my very eyes. But besides that, it was good. <laughs> Uh, they're like, do it again. <laughs> I, I accept it. I accept it. Like, literally, I was bursting at the seams uh, just yeah. talking to someone um, whose art uh, influenced, you know, as you stare at the, the music or as you listen to the music and you're staring at the album covers, um, this is a man that was directly responsible for that. Um, so, yeah, there was that Chris Farley moment where I wanted to say, remember when you were doing this? That was awesome. But... <laughs> um, thankfully, I did try to rope it around into yeah. something that didn't necessarily uh, make me implode in front of someone I highly respect and admire. No, well, it's cool. Get... It's cool because he's, you know, um, yes, he was the art director for Nine Inch Nails, but hearing about his process more and how interlaced it was with, you know, the mastermind Trent Reznor's, you know, process, and then how it kind of changed Rob's art kind of moving on. Um, it's just a, it's a great story and it, 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 it ties to everything and you know he's standing on his own as an artist but uh, really contributed in more ways than we ever knew to to the albums we love. Yeah, and it uh, it is always good even though you might feel like you're nerding out or whatnot to let people that made things you appreciate know that you appreciate them. So people should do more of that. So that's it for this episode. Uh, we hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, we certainly enjoyed making it. Um, so, like Steven said, we only have a few more of these left, and then that is it. One more, then the internet goes away, and we go away with it. <laughs> so, like always, we hope that we brought you closer to... Pod. Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs>